0: Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues and VIP guests will share valuable insight into underlying health causes, conditions and issues. For more information about Jay Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial
1: 713-783-6655
0: and be sure to mention this podcast.
1: I'm not kidding. <laughs> he and I today, uh, we're just on <laughs> different pages. <laughs> What oh, Lord. Uh, and, you know, he's he's going on a trip tomorrow, so he's kind of giddy, and he's in a different place. <laughs> hopefully a real
2: vacation finally goes
1: over.
0: Well, you no, know, it's a working vacation, dadgummit, but that's okay. Short working vacation, but anyway, let's we'll go. Take what we can get. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Oh, Lordy. Welcome to Understanding the Human Condition with your host, Dr. James Flowers. Hey, Robin. How are you? I'm great.
0: Good. <laughs> You're silly you? today. <laughs> I don't know why.
1: I know, but I, I like you. You
0: gave me the giggles today. I did give me the giggles. I'm doing Googles. great. I'm excited <laughs> about our guest today.
1: Yes, we have Dr. Michael Zima. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Michael Zima is the author of Modern Healthcare Delivery: Deliverance or Debacle? A Glimpse from the Inside Out. Welcome.
0: Robin, how about you read his bio? I think that'd be great.
1: I would love that. Dr. Zima is the former professor of medicine and division chief of cardiology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Chattanooga. His mission is to deliver a much-needed message about healthcare, a subject so fundamentally important to each and every one of us. The lack of knowledge and degree of misinformation that abounds is simply as- astonishing. His hope is to provide, provide all of his readers, healthcare insurers, administrators, would-be providers, and patients, additional insights whereby they may navigate more com- comfortably outside of their comfort zone, attaining a much broader perspective of the overall healthcare delivery system.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Doctor. And something resonated with me that that I wanted to ask you about in this paragraph that she just read. Uh, let's see. Da-da-da-da. Let's see. The lack of knowledge and degree of misinformation is astonishing. Let's start right there. The lack of knowledge and misinformation in the healthcare system in a whole. I happen to agree with that, of course. And I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of thought behind that.
2: If you turn on the news, whether it be cable or major stations, uh, the so-called pundits who, you know, on the exterior uh, seem to just exude knowledge, uh-huh. uh, are just giving misinformation. Uh-huh. Half of them don't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Agree. And even among my colleagues, you know, each one of us operate in our own little silo. Uh, where if we're a provider or an insurer or a hospital administrator or a nurse, uh, we do our task and we do them very well. And we have very little knowledge about what's going on in the other silos. Uh-huh. And the interconnectivity of those silos is our healthcare care delivery system. And if you talk to somebody outside their silo, you'll find out they really don't know much more than the layperson and certainly mm. no more than the television pundits often. And that's that's very troubling to me.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I use those terms, the same terms frequently in our own Practice at J. Flowers Health Institute, and in that patients come to us from all over the world looking for answers because they've been to some of the best healthcare institutions in the country looking for an answer, and they leave with no answer. And oftentimes, what I say is, you know, I'm going to use, uh, uh, well, I'll use a well known institution up in the Midwest who will have multiple silos of experts, right? And they go to one expert and they see that expert for an evaluation and they spend 30, 40 minutes maybe with that person. And then they'll go to the next person, the next person, the next person. And then they send in the central facts line, the results of their evaluation, but none of them talk to the other silos at all. And the patient leaves just as confused or more confused than they were before they went into the system.
2: We've got a million lieutenants in the system. There is no captain. The -hmm. disappearance of the internist, the old family internist, who was the assimilator of all the information
1: from the various consultants has left a big gap
0: in healthcare delivery. Absolutely.
1: You had a chapter that um, that brings me to the Dr. Marcus Welby right Do you
0: yeah. remember Correct. Dr. Marcus yeah, Welby
1: course. Talk to talk to the audience about that chapter because he was sure. the he was the man back then yeah. right I mean, Marcus
2: Welby portrayed by Robert Young uh, in the early 1970s on ABC he was that avuncular physician who was not just a healer of body but a friend someone that you could confide in perhaps a healer of even of spirit uh, knew the family knew their history, knew them by name, mm-hmm. et cetera. That has disappeared. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. We can talk about the why that's disappeared, but it's gone. And indeed, when I would talk to some of our house staff in training about that, their answer would be, we don't have time for what you did in your generation. That didn't make me feel well, by the yeah. way. In my yeah. generation,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: We we have to work faster than that now, so we just don't have time for that. And then I reminded him of what an old-time physician once said. He said, "A patient does not care what you know until he knows that you care."
0: Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh huh. Yeah.
2: True words. Mm-hmm. True words.
0: So true. Um, You know my grandfather uh, was an old family practice uh, physician uh, down in deep south texas and i grew up as a little boy with my grandfather making house calls and uh, patients came to his home patients of course he was at the hospital frequently but in his private practice He treated multiple family members of families and generations of families and knew the history, the medical history of every single one of them. And I always just watched him as a kid during the summer. I spent every summer in his office, you know, working in my grandfather's medical practice. And it was a small medical practice in Alice, Texas. And it was amazing seeing that. And he retired when he was 92 years old. And I remember the day he closed his uh healthcare practice and uh it was it was this somewhat informal but formal closing of the vault and walking away and it was a really sad day for the town they threw a little parade for him and you know i don't think there's been a physician like that since he retired but Mm -hmm. you know i own his medical bag from the, the entire time he practiced medicine he has this beautiful alligator medical bag that i cherish and i have all of his prescription pad and everything in it it's one of my most prized possessions but the way he practiced i think is what you're referring to
2: yeah Correct. And as you know, that's what drove a lot of physicians to retire early or to go into concierge medicine Mm -hmm. because they had no third good option.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's your take on concierge medicine uh, today in 2021 and your thought on concierge medicine and what it provides in the population in which see a concierge physician?
2: Well, I think, again, I think it came out of the time pressure. Uh, in the patient visit. I mean, let, let's go back and say, you know, where did the 12 to 15 minute visit come from?
0: Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: Probably started with, you know, RV, RVUs from CMS, from Medicare. Uh, before that, of course, physicians were compensated by reasonable and customary charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the HMOs jumped in in the late 80s and 90s. And as they uh, partnered or took over practices, and put a seven to ten-minute uh, limit uh-huh. on the amount of uh, time spent during the patient encounter. Uh, practicing physicians were faced with a quandary. Uh, my expenses are going up, and they were, okay, during that time period. Uh-huh. So, you know, how do I keep my income from falling? Uh, I can either do more services or more testing, uh, but you know, the, the, the primary care physician was somewhat limited. How many visits could he cram into the hour? Mm -hmm. So things started to change. And we now have, on average, a 12-minute visit in primary Mm -hmm. care uh, with the amount of time spent discussing with the patient, the findings, the recommendations, and the next step being 90 seconds. Right. You know, physicians, you know, we took an oath. And we look at that and say, it cannot be done properly that way. That's right. And so we looked at, you know, uh, where our dollar was going, Uh, you know, in this country, 73 cents out of a dollar goes toward the patient care and the rest is in billing and insurance and administrative costs. And we said, you know, let's cut out the middleman, let's cut out the insurance person, let's start offering a better service to our patients and that's where concierge medicine came in. A number of different business models of concierge medicine, but they're all they're all probably better than what the physician has as an alternative.
0: Yeah. You know, I see a concierge physician in, in my own life for my own physician. And, and the reason that I did that is uh, I read in your book, you know, typically we're used to going in and seeing the physician, right? Then the time started cutting down then the nurse practitioner came in or the PA Mm -hmm. and we didn't even get to see the physician anymore. And I was like, okay, I've had it. I want it when I, I want to see my doctor. And in order to do that, I had to join a a concierge practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. Every once in a while you just reach that line and said, no further, please. I'm I'm out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You Uh, wait weeks and weeks and weeks to go Mm -hmm. see this physician and you get there and you don't even see them. You see someone that they've handed you off to you talk about that in your book. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So if you had to give today's modern healthcare care a grade, what would you give it? Not concierge medicine because that's the way to go. <laughs> but what would you give it, do you think? I'd probably give it a C for
2: effort and a D minus for mm-hmm. outcomes and efficacy because I think, I think we're failing and the intelligent physicians and other providers know that we're failing. Mm -hmm. just don't know how to cure the problem. Right.
1: Is that why we have a physician shortage right now? Because we're just failing and they've they've all become discouraged? I mean, the U.S. has a physician shortage, right? Yeah, the physician shortage actually, you know, it goes back
2: a number of decades. Uh, The handwriting was on the wall. I think, uh, you know, starting in the 60s and 70s and 80s, as more and more physicians went into specialty Hmm. practice and less and less in primary care. And then of course you had LBJ's war on poverty Uh where he wanted to get primary care out uh, to a greater (laughs) number of Americans. And you had the Corpsman coming back from Vietnam. Uh, So the nurse practitioner and the PA movement came at the right time, if you will, for the physician shortage. And even right now, if you look at uh, the AAMC, the American uh, Academy of Medical Colleges, they're telling us that the increase in physicians that we can expect between now and 2030 is about one-half of 1% per year, whereas the increase in PAs and NPs is averaging 5% per year each.
0: Wow.
2: So do the math here. And you can see where we're going by 2025. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just read an article last week uh, on Friday. uh, There is a record number of African-Americans applying for medical school more than ever at this point. I wonder what you might attribute that to.
2: Well, I'm glad to see that because I actually looked at the national figures a while ago in medical schools. And uh What we have is a a great increase in the number of Asians, Uh particularly females, but uh, Asian males also. Uh Uh, African-American females now comprise about 5% of medical students. And African-American males are still down at 3% or less. So that's encouraging uh, to see that. Uh, When I went to medical school, I'm embarrassed because obviously you can look up where I went. We had uh, some 92 students in the first year. We had two African-Americans, both male, and we had four females totally all white. Uh-huh. And everybody else was a white male. <laughs> Not right. good. Right. Not good for the population that has to be served. So we've come a long way. I think this is the first year where actually female medical students have actually uh, uh, topped number of male medical students
0: i i read that i thought that was pretty pretty darn amazing absolutely you know a lot about what you write about is the the flawed doctor to doctor and doctor to patient communication what do you mean by that i i think i know what you mean by that because i talk to my own patients about it every day and that lack of communication and that expectation of a physician just to i've got to hurry i've got to hurry i've got to hurry but what do you mean by that lack of communication
2: well Again, it's twofold. We have a doctor-doctor problem and a doctor-patient problem. Yeah. Since I've alluded to some earlier things, let's talk about the doctor-patient problem yes. first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, if you're going to spend ninety seconds discussing with the patient your findings, your recommendations, and the next step, by definition, you have a doctor-patient communication problem. Right. I mean,
0: yeah. I've
2: got to tell you, I've practiced down down south here now for about ten years plus. And, you know, people down south are very amicable. I mean, it could take you five minutes to say hello. Down
0: south. I agree. You know, talk about
2: their, they want to talk about their grandbabies and this that's and that. Right. I mean, you know, that's just the way it is. So yeah. in 90 <laughs> seconds, you, you've got to be kidding. So that's a real issue. That is and then so tra- true. And then try to reach your doctor. I mean, my son, well, I won't his his medical condition, yeah. but you know, he can try to reach his physician who's very well qualified. A mm-hmm. hundred publications in peer-reviewed journals, et cetera. You can't get through. You get the NP, you get yep. the RN, you leave a mm-hmm. message, you type something into the portal. You can't talk to your doctor. Yeah. All right, so that's one half. Now, how about Dr. Doctor? That's not much better. I no. even wrote a, a little editorial in our local newspaper about it some years ago. Uh, you know, I remember the time when, primary care would call me in as a cardiology consultant. He would spend two or three minutes on the phone telling me briefly about the case. I would do the consult, discuss things with the patient and then return the call and spend two to three minutes discussing with him, my findings and recommendations. It does not happen anymore.
0: It doesn't. No. (laughs) When
2: I, when I asked our primary care here, why don't you, you know, Call me and tell me about the patient. He said, it's in the EMR. It's in the emergency. It's in the electronic medical record. (laughs) Read it on your own. If you don't, I'll call somebody else as a consultant.
0: Right. Mm.
2: Really? Really? That's the way we treat each other. So can we expect the insurance companies to treat us any better?
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about Chapter 6, the New World Order Convenience Care. Tell the audience your views on this.
2: Well, you know, when, uh, when retail medical clinics and urgent care clinics uh, first came on the scenes, I remember I was in training. I'm not going to give away. <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, I remember, you know, our, our medical directors, you know, we all would uh, just disparage them a bit. You know, We used to call them Doc in the Box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, the patient's yeah. going to go to the Doc in the Box. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, like it was Wendy's, you know, to pick up a hamburger. But, again, they're a product of what we allowed to happen mm-hmm. in medical care delivery. If you're going to call your doctor and say, I'm really not feeling well, I have a low-grade fever, and be told, well, I have nothing today, and give us a call tomorrow because something may open up, then people are going to look for an alternative to okay. feel better. Mm-hmm. And so, at this point in time, I've changed my mind. I've I've used them. Uh, I've sent my family to them. Uh, They have some pluses. They certainly have some minuses because of continuity of care issues. Mm -hmm. And they have some minuses potentially with regard to costs for the healthcare system. Because Mm -hmm. of the lack of continuity, the patient often after doing the retail care visit will then see the physician anyway in the office, his or her physician, Mm -hmm. a week later. Mm -hmm. And you get another charge to the national healthcare expenditure. So it may not be saving money, it may be another layer, Mm -hmm. if you will, of healthcare expenditure, but I sort of understand how it came about now.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. You highlight telemedicine, telehealth, and virtual healthcare in your book. What's your take on it?
2: I think it's here to stay. I think the pandemic has uh, lit the fire under CMS. Uh, You know, Medicare had always been the laggard. Private insurers and Medicaid had picked it up pretty well even before the pandemic. They knew its limitations, but they were using it. And CMS, you know, was using it as a pittance. Uh It had so many requirements on where you could render the the telemedicine service. I think that's going to change. There's a move underway in Congress, again, to have it changed. My own feeling is... Technology may help here. You now, as a physician, I have a real problem when I can't examine the patient. Mm-hmm. History is very important. You know, the five fingers that I talk about in my book, the history, the physical, the lab data, et cetera, et cetera. History is number one. But the physical exam is number two. And if I can't lay hands on both from a diagnostic and therapeutic okay. laying on of hands, the patient is missing something here. Uh-huh. Now, technology is, is trying to do it. We've got technology now that will allow you know, a, a, an NP, a PA, or a technologist to go in there uh, with the proper uh, uh, toys, if you will, and record heart sounds, take pictures of the eardrum, and things like that, and do, if you will, home visits with telehealth to a physician or specialist so maybe, maybe, it's not around the corner, but maybe those sort of technological breakthroughs may take away some of the reticence that physicians like myself have of doing pure telehealth visits. But again, I think they have a role, it'll be increasing, but you know, the laying on of hands
0: yeah. mm-hmm. well no
2: is itself curative.
0: It is. The mm-hmm.
2: placebo of laying on of hands And the reassurance is never going to be there from a telehealth visit.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. What was your impetus uh, for writing the book and coming up with the, uh, I I know what the idea was, but what what made you say, I'm going to sit down and write this book? It's the right time, and it's important to get this news out there.
2: Well, as Robin had alluded to earlier, again, I thought the amount of misinformation out there uh, was bad and was getting worse. Mm -hmm. I do watch the news. I do talk to my colleagues. I do stay up with modern medicine. And I said, you know, somebody needs to put this into print. Uh-huh. We need to get our arms around the issues that are facing us. And I looked at the books that were written, and they were written for healthcare administrators, for attorneys. They're not written for providers of the healthcare and or their patients. Yeah. And so that, that was the impetus. I said, you know, you're going to have to do it because no one else is going to take the time to do it, and it was a very time-consuming project.
0: Absolutely. Did I you bet. do part of this during Good. your? I don't remember what year it was. Uh, did you? Was this your COVID year writing?
2: <laughs> COVID years, plural. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, it was. Yes, it was writing and reading because you know I was basically. While I am a certified physician executive and Six Sigma certified, I still am a provider. It right. was my silo. Yeah. I had been I had been department heads, but again, that's my silo. Yeah. What was going on outside my silo? Yeah. So to me it was an education. I had to educate myself first mm-hmm. before I'm gonna put things into print to try to help other people understand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What advice would you give our audience that is out there that does not have Uh, a concierge physician or a close relationship and they don't get to see like kind of like even your own son who has you as a father, but still has a difficult time accessing his own physician. What's your advice to people listening um, and, and finding the right physician, finding the right relationship and getting through to your physician.
2: Scout around number one in your provider network. Yeah. Go online Read the reviews from patients, you know, vitals, health, health grades, et cetera. None of them are perfect. Yeah, that's for sure. That's right. If you do three or four, you can narrow your list down. Then go. Mm-hmm. Then go. If You'll know on your first or second visit whether this is a match or not. And if it's not, don't be satisfied. Keep going. More than likely, if you find the provider that we've talked about, he or she's going to be somebody over age 50. More than likely, there are exceptions, okay? And stay with them until they retire. If that doesn't work, give a good look to concierge medicine and see if it's a fit for you. Yeah, that's right, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: And the last question that I had for you is two of your chapters in your book are titled Better Healthcare for Less 1.0 and 2.0. What do you personally believe needs to be done for us to achieve better healthcare for less?
2: Well, in 1.0, I basically discussed the things that have failed, Mm -hmm. pay for performance, accountable care organizations, bundled payments. Even Seema Verma, the outgoing CMS director on a WebMD uh, conference this past October, admitted that of the 34 pilot projects that the CMS Innovation Center uh, has started since 2010, since the Affordable Care Act approved the Innovation Center, only five out of the 34 had successfully reduced costs. And only three of the five had reduced costs to the extent that they could go, possibly go nationally with it. So she admits that it's been a failure. Uh Mm. She admits that it has been a failure. So, you know, where do we go? Where do we go from there? Uh, in 2.0 in the last chapter, I say, well, look, what are the main drivers of cost? Because that's what this is all about. It, yes, they hide it under the guise of quality, but it really is cost. Quality in the in our healthcare delivery system is still one of the best in the world. Uh-huh. What's the proof of that? The marketplace. Where do the Shahs and the Sultans, where do they all come to have their medicine? They come to the US survey, right? right? Mm-hmm. So that means that the quality ultimately is here, but problem is the cost of maintaining it. At 18% of our GDP and growing, it is not sustainable. Uh A number of organizations have shown that the next highest, the next highest cost uh, per capita, when normalized for GDP, is 40 to 50% lower than us. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the rest of the world's doing it for less than we are. So what are the main main drivers? Waste, unnecessary performance yeah. of services. Yeah. Again, in the fee for service model, you eat what you kill, if you will, you're gonna kill more, quote unquote. Yep. You're gonna do more things because you're reimbursed on that basis. We can try to morph the fee for service system. With appropriateness criteria, value-based criteria, I talk about both of those morphing tools in the book. We can change it and go to capitation.- uh-huh. That will certainly uh, put some skin in the game for the provider. Remember remember, the provider is the head of the ship here. Without the provider, there are no services. Without those services, there's no health care delivery. Without healthcare delivery, there are no costs. So, the provider is the gatekeeper. So, how do you change provider behavior? Uh-huh. That's what we discuss in that chapter. Defensive medicine, a big, a big cost. How do we approach that? Tort reform? Uh-huh. The, trial lo- the trial lawyers have one of the biggest lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Right. Bigger than the AFL CIO, bigger than the doctors, bigger than the teachers. Bigger than the entertainment industry. Good luck. Good luck with having effective tort reform. And lastly, administrative costs. Administrative costs. We talked about this earlier. 27 cents on a dollar is not going toward clinical patient care. And here's where the, the single payers keep coming back. And they have a point. In the single payer model, administrative costs would be cut considerably. Of course, then there's the downside issues. Associated with the single payer model, which are also discussed by me, in that last chapter.
0: Yeah. Universal health care, yes or no?
2: Mm. Well, you know, when we talk about single payer, ultimately, we're talking about about the bigger issue uh-huh. of universal health care. Uh-huh. I mean, it's single payer is universal health care in disguise.
0: Yes. Yep.
2: And you know, whether universal health care is a right or a privilege. And I discussed that in detail uh, in the last chapter. And I wonder what our founding fathers thought in the Declaration of Independence, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Bill of Rights. You really can't find that individualized healthcare is there. But you know, if you poll even physicians, providers, if you poll them and look at you know, single payer, if you look at single payer 10, 15 years ago, you find you know no more than 40% probably We're in favor of it. I think that's up over 50% now as providers are getting fed up with running the marathon around all the objects that they have to do and all the hurdles that they have to jump over. So, you know, just like, as I point out in the book, just like same-sex marriage, things change when the American people finally say, you know what? The system is bad enough. As it is, we need to move on, put our baggage aside, and take a look at the pros and the cons of single payer, which ultimately is going to be universal health care, which is what single payer is in disguise.
0: There you go. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you um, again for being on the program. And everyone, again, the book is Modern Healthcare Delivery: Deliverance or Debacle, A Glimpse from the Inside Out. Michael J. Zima, MD. Thank you again.
0: Available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Barnes and Noble. Awesome. Barnes and Nobles
2: and also available, you know, on all the platforms for uh, uh, online, you know,
0: Enooks,
1: all of
2: them.
0: Yeah. Well, we would love to have you as a guest in person sometime soon. Thank you so much for what you did. Thank you. It's an amazing book and all the best to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much
2: for having me on and helping me get the word out.
1: You a awesome.
0: happy, happy, happy week. Thanks so much.
1: And I'd like to remind you everyone watching or listening to us that there's numerous platforms to find our podcasts. YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please help us out by subscribing to our podcast, liking it, and sharing it. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dr. Flowers. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Thank you Zima. Everybody.
2: Bye-bye, folks. Right, bye.
1: Bye-bye. See you next week, everyone.